Hello and welcome to 10 by 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. Started by Padraig Tuma and me, Paul Doran, in Belfast in 2011. And welcome to the 10 by 9 podcast. There are three stories on this podcast, two from our recent live event in the Black Box when the theme was gratitude, and one from our Zoom event in July on Seaside Stories. But let's start with a 10 by 9 regular. Here's Jim Livingston, live and brilliant. Um, when I was a boy, my mommy taught me manners. Open doors for ladies and old people. She said, walk on the outside of the pavement when, a, when, when standing beside a lady, and she used to slap me on the back of the head if I didn't. Always say please when asking for something, and most important of all, say thank you when somebody gives you something or helps you. Her favourite saying was, saying thank you is not just good manners, it's food for your soul. Over the years I've received gratitude from time to time. I've also experienced some of the opposite. 50 years ago in 1971, yes, I was alive in 1971, the troubles had hit us hard in Belfast, and as a young student, I struggled like others to cope with horrendous daily news of killings, mayhem and bloodshed. It was frightening, but being young, of course, I convinced myself that if I kept alert, I could live life to the full. So I was in the pub every night, chasing girls, playing snooker, playing guitar in a band, and all with the odd bit of academic study, now and again, when I could fit it in. And my grand Fred was in the Royal Victoria at the time, very poorly. I was very close to Fred, and at 71, I was worried that his severe bronchitis might be the end of him. So I visited him every day. A bus into town, then one up the Grosvenor Road to the Royal, carrying a bag of his favourite brandy balls and two Paris buns, one for him and one for me. When I got on the bus in town, it was nearly full, and I got the last seat on the lower deck beside a little old lady. She was tiny and looked very frail. The poor thing was sobbing gently and blowing her nose. Are you all right, missus? I asked. Oh, thanks, son. It's my Jack, you see. He's very poorly, you see, and I'm going to see him in the Royal. I'm really worried about him, you know. It's his back passage. Uh, I, my imagination sort of went out in a flight of fancy, but I said I tried to reassure her and told her that the doctors were brilliant in the Royal. They're world famous. I'm sure Jack will be well again. Oh, thank you, son. You're a good boy. Thank you. I was feeling quite pleased with myself. Poor old lady. She needed somebody with her. I thought, I'll look after her. Suddenly the driver slammed on the brakes and the bus shuddered to a halt, just past Durham Street. A policeman jumped on the bus and ordered everyone to get down low. There may be a bomb in the building ahead. Keep your heads down. Pandemonium broke out. People were shouting and crying. Everyone wanted to run and through the window I could see army jeeps and Saracens arrive and take up positions in the middle of the road opposite what I think was the Walpamir paint store, just up the road. Presumably where the bomb is, I thought. 
The policeman then jumped on the bus again and shouted, OK, everybody, off the bus, quick, get behind that wee wall. We were just in front of the UTA, that's the Ulster Transport Authority office, which had a low wall in the front, about three foot high, behind which a few cars were parked. People now started push and shoving to get off. I grabbed the little old lady and said, come on, missus, you'll have to come, we need to go. She was crying and a look of terror in her face. And she was babbling and looked all around and wouldn't move. So I pulled her after me back towards the exit. She was crying louder now and in a terrible panic. But the policeman standing on the rear platform of the bus shouted, Get that woman off! Quick! So I lifted her onto my shoulder and off the bus. Kicking and screaming and then I heard the cracks of gunfire. For the only time in my life, thank God, I saw bullets hitting the pavement and zinging everywhere around us. I later learned that the gunmen were on a high building and had opened fire on the soldiers in an ambush. In fact, there was no bomb. I was briefly paralysed with fear. But then my little old lady, who I still had over my shoulder, started shouting and screaming, Let me down, you big bastard! Let me down! <laughs> the policeman gave me a shove. And I dropped the wee woman over the wee wall. And I jumped over and I lay on top of her. And the policeman jumped over and he lay beside us. And the bullets were whizzing in the air. And the old lady screamed, Rape! Rape! This bastard's trying to rape me, help! Mr. Policeman! The policeman shouted back, Shut the hell up, you stupid woman! He's protecting you! Stay still for God's sake! She went quiet and just whimpered beneath me. It was the first time I ever had a woman beneath me, actually. But anyway, <laughs> after a few minutes, soldiers started to clear the area. The shooting had stopped. The policeman nodded to me and I got up and held my hand out to the wee woman. Come on now, missus, we can go. Bugger off, you dirty big creep. <laughs> and she scuttled down the road back to the city centre. The policeman smiled and shrugged his shoulders as if to say, oh, there's gratitude for you, eh? <laughs> I waved at the peeler and made my way to safety. I didn't see Grander Fred until the next day, just a week before he died. I never did hear what happened to Jack and his back passage. <laughs> Fast forward 20 years and I was working as a civil servant and I often had to fly to London for meetings. I hated being away from home and so, when possible, I would take the 7am flight to Heathrow and the 8pm flight back in the evening to Belfast. It was an exhausting routine. One evening the flight was, as usual, nearly full and passengers were seated, but there was no sign of it taking off. Then the steward announced that the plane was waiting for one passenger who had a disability. There was one seat empty between me and another passenger at the window. I grumbled to myself, I hope whoever is keeping us waiting has a bloody good excuse. Suddenly, there was some action at the door. We were seated at the rear. He appeared. A big, very big, tall man, long, straggly, grey hair down to his shoulders, a long grey beard, wearing a big woollen overcoat tied with a piece of rope. My fellow passenger groaned, oh shit, 
he's going to be sitting between us, a bloody tramp. The air hostess guided the old man down the aisle. I stood up to let him sit down. Thank you, young fella, he said with a distinct country accent. The hostess helped him put his seatbelt on. Thank you kindly, miss. Thank you. I sat down and immediately detected a very, very strong body odour. I was not looking forward to this flight. I just wanted to book. I've never been on a plane before, son. I'm a bit nervous, he said. I just nodded, is that right, and said nothing. Once we were airborne, he talked incessantly. He never shut up. The passenger at the window spent the entire flight looking out the window, apparently admiring every single cloud. <laughs> I learned from his life history, and the old man was going back to Tyrone for his brother's funeral. He had left 25 years earlier by boat for England, but later fell on hard times, was homeless, and had been tracked down by the Salvation Army who arranged to get him home. I began to scold myself for my annoyance. Then the flight dinner was served. The old man was thrilled. How much is this? I said, it's free. Free, folks! <laughs> His face beamed even more so when the stewardess said, would you like some wine, sir? It's free! Yes. <laughs> then can I have a wee glass of red wine, please, with a brandy in it? <laughs> Thank you kindly. Then he turned to me and asked, Son, I can't use a knife and fork. It's my hands, you see, they're a bit shaky. I need a spoon to eat this lovely chicken and rice. Could you cut it up for me? I hesitated and snorted some annoyance. Bloody hell. I thought, OK. So I cut up his food into small chunks and then I witnessed the tremors in his hand. As soon as he filled a spoon with food, his hand shook so badly that most of it never reached his mouth. Most of it, in fact, landed on my lap and Mr. Window lap. <laughs> Amazingly, however, when drinking his red wine imbued with brandy, he held it with two hands. It took quite a while to get from the table to his mouth, but he never dropped a single, spilt a bloody drop. Mind over matter, clearly. We landed in Belfast and disembarked. I wish the old boy well. He responded, thank you so much, son. I really am so glad I was sitting beside you before heading off to meet his family. I immediately felt so angry at myself for my grumbling and petulance early and then quite chuffed at his quite kind gratitude. Mummy was right. It certainly is food for the soul. Great to have you back, Jim. There are many of Jim's stories scattered across our podcasts, and you can see Jim telling a few of them on our YouTube channel. All our Zoom events are up there in bite-sized chunks, and among them, you'll find some stories from our next speaker. She became a 10 by 9 regular over lockdown. She is Scotland's finest, Gita Meaton. The west coast of Scotland seaside is where I first started practicing to become a grown-up, by which I mean hanging out with the girls while they smoked and drank espresso, 
and sneaking sexy books from the shelf to read in secret. Largs is a seaside holiday town of faded Victorian grandeur developed for Glaswegians to escape to. And it's famous for the Battle of Largs, which is commemorated at the end of the promenade by the pencil monument, a phallic wee stone tower with a pointy end. I'm sure you're very well aware of the battle, but just in case you're not by some chance, in 1098, some fearsome Scottish warriors repelled the Viking invasion of mainland Scotland by King Hakon Hackinson and his longboats. Actually, in a story that will never make a badly accented Mel Gibson movie, what really happened was that the 22-year-old Scottish king stalled them with diplomacy until winter set in, resulting in the Viking longboats running aground, the warriors demoralised by rain and cold and a strategic retreat to Orkney as if that would be any better, where Hakon promptly died of stress and the miserable climate, according to reports at the time. So it turns out that the best way to defeat an invader in Scotland is just to submit them to a dismal winter just off the west coast. So it's a perfect place for a Victorian holiday resort. Centuries later, another foreign invader was more successful than the Norse ones. Italians fleeing post-war poverty and famine wisely realised that you would be welcomed into Scottish towns with open arms if you came bearing gelato and deep fried potatoes. Perhaps their Roman ancestors would have gotten a bit further up Scotland if they tried that in 400 AD. They clearly missed a trick. So, Largs became famous for its promenade, its crazy golf, and its swan-shaped pedal boats on the pond and sounds not too dissimilar to Bangor. And for Nardini's Cafe, established in 1930s by one family of Italian invaders, serving ice cream and fish and chips to Ouija's or Glaswegians escaping the city. No longer under threat from invading Norwegians, families could find a bench to sit on to enjoy their meat paste sandwiches and warm lemonade, mum in her best Sunday dress and dad in his shirt and tie, sleeves rolled up as a concession to the heat. By the 1980s, when my connection with Largs began, Nardini's was still the main attraction Though the Art Deco glamour was a wee bit chipped and faded in places, dads no longer wore their shirts and ties, instead following the great Glaswegian edict. Sun's out, taps off, and a high chance of sweaty boz. At the hint of a temperature above 14 degrees or so. And with a devil-may-care attitude to cancer prevention, not one scrap of sun cream was applied pasty white bellies turning violently red as the day wore on, the return train full of wincing families waiting to get home to a cold bath and a slathering of pink calamine lotion. Like decades of Glaswegians before us, we'd visit a few times a year for a day doing the water to visit my first cousin twice removed. In previous story, I talked about my dad's parents with their orderly, unremarkable love story and Agnes Butters, known as Nancy, was Grandpa's cousin. For reasons long lost in family history, they didn't speak until my dad was 12, and we think perhaps Gran was a bit jealous of her and kept them apart because Nancy was the most glamorous person I knew. She taught music and led choirs and could have been a concert pianist if the war and caring for her elderly mother hadn't gotten in the way. She married Fred Butters, 
a wonderfully moustached retired army officer, but too late to have children of her own, and then lost him too early to cancer. In the hall of her 1930s bungalow on Sinclair Drive stood his dark lacquered chest, intricate carving and a brass key telling of its birthplace in Penang, Malaysia, and its long journey back over the sea. She often absentmindedly trailed her elegant fingers over the surface as she passed, and I wonder if she remembered her Fred every time she opened the lid to inhale the medicinal camphor wood scent from inside. She'd ask what we wanted for lunch when we visited, and every time we'd ask for her amazing beef stew with neeps or turnips and tatties. And though I've tried for years to replicate it, I've never quite come close. When she died, she still had portions neatly frozen in plastic tubs. And we, cleared, we defrosted and heated one. And with each mouthful, I thought after today, I'll never taste this again. I loved her. And as the eldest of three, I had the special treat of being allowed to go and stay for a week in the summer holidays, where she made absolutely no concession to me being a child, other than carefully placing her threadbare stife bear on the pillow. And we spent our days like a couple of companionable old ladies. Over breakfast, white linen cloths wet carefully clean with a special silver brush and pan set, napkins and rings. This is hers and it says AB engraved on the side and neat toast triangles in the rack. We would make our plans for the day. I loved her blue and white china, the tiny rounded knife for the butter and the peace of being without my brother and sister. On sunny days, we'd walk the promenade, talking about everything and nothing, interrupted often by the people she knew in the town. And on rainy days, we'd watch TV or read companionably and play duets on her huge, heavy, upright piano. She thought I didn't practice enough and she was absolutely right. And I have her piano still, untunable and far too loud, but I will never, ever let it go. Her maiden name is written under the stool in looping characters, a scringer. And when I place my fingers on the keys, they're worn in the middle from her practicing. And I can picture her straight back, an elegant neck as she played, and hear her reminding me to stop slouching and to keep my wrists up. I love to watch as she got ready for coffee with the girls twice a week, applying her bright lipstick in the mirror, her neat ankles crossed to one side under her pencil skirt. She would no more dream of leaving the house without lipstick than going out naked. The girls had their own table in Nardini's where they were on flirty first name terms with the Italian waiters. I sipped my milkshake as unobtrusively as I could, hoping that they would forget I was there and let some juicy gossip filter through the cloud of cigarette smoke. And to me, they were ancient, but I think they were probably just in their early 60s, all widowed, all avoiding the temptation of the ice cream sundaes being delivered to other tables because keeping trim meant cigarettes and coffee rather than indulging in cake or ice cream. Deprived of banana splits, I invented a treat for myself, lowering a craggy sugar lump into their abandoned coffee, watching the pristine white sugar darken like mud into melting snow and then crunching it between my teeth. The caffeine sugar hit was seriously magical. Give it a try if no one's watching you, it beats a Red Bull hands down for a brain jangling high. One summer, 
having exhausted all my books brought from home, I raided the tall bookshelf outside my room and discovered rows of Jackie Collins type bodice rippers, women swooning into muscular arms on the cover and inside were breathless consent adjacent sexual hijinks. As an early teen girl with sexual knowledge gathered from line drawings in biology class or youth group teachings that you just shouldn't do it unless you had a wedding ring and probably only once or twice grudgingly after that, I'd hit the jackpot. With enough practice, you can skip all the boring dialogue and get straight to the chapters where throbbing members and heaving breasts make their appearances. And it makes me smile to imagine the two of us heading to our rooms after our bedtime Earl Grey propped up on our pillows into the wee small hours, reading tales of profoundly unfeminist and in hindsight fairly problematic sexiness. Real life romance wasn't over for Nancy though. On one of my stays, she shyly asked what I would think if she had met someone. On a cruise with the girls, she had met Luigi, one of those post-war Italian immigrants, a good few inches smaller than her statuesque 5'11" but he could make zabalioni and tiramisu and gnocchi from scratch. He knew where to forage for wild mushrooms and dry them in the earring cupboards and drove an amazing Alfa Romeo convertible because Italy at terrifying gleeful speed. He carried a comb in his pocket, muttering to himself, my hairs, my hairs, they're misbehaving in a gorgeous accent, unchanged from living in England for most of his life. I loved the way he opened the car door for her, her hand in his as she unfolded those elegant legs, ankles neatly together like a 50s film star. And he made the last few years of her life a joy. Breast cancer claimed her in the end, long hidden in her cells after we thought surgery had got rid of it. Morphine and sedatives dulling the pain of the metastases in her brain under the white sheets of a hospital bed and her funeral was quieter than we expected for someone who had been so vibrant and well loved. We barely filled the side chapel of the church where she played organ for years and the pianist messed up the hymns. Only Luigi and our family were there for the sandwiches and tea after the service which still breaks my heart a little and we didn't keep in touch with him after she left us. I'm not sure why not. So we cleared her bungalow just before Andy and I were married and I claimed that wonderful delicate blue and white china and the silver napkin rings and the loud, loud piano. And I also kept the mirror she sat in front of to get ready for coffee with the girls and I put my own red lipstick on in front of it now. So I'm glad that Hack and Hackinson couldn't hack the Scottish weather and was sent homewards to think again because it meant that 700 years or so later, I was able to take a trip down the water to Nancy's to learn about being a grown-up and how strong black coffee makes you feel alive and how to fold a linen napkin and how to never give up on romance or the power of red lipstick and how to live your life exactly as you want to. I did let the books go though, because I'm pretty sure I never need to read another Jackie Collins novel ever again. How fantastic was that? She sounds amazing. She was. She was just, yeah, she was a superhero. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you model any part of yourself upon her? The red lipstick, for sure. I didn't yeah. like to say. I didn't like to say. So. <laughs> it's been a downside of lockdown and masks, so it's nice to get <laughs> an excuse to put it on. <laughs> Thanks so much, Gita, for introducing us to Agnes Scrimger. Let's hope you get to join us soon in the Black Box. 
Now, Ten by Nine is always free and always will be, but we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover some of our costs. We're so thankful to everyone who has donated or continues to donate. Or you can give via PayPal, just look us up using our email address, which is story at 10by9.com. That is story at 10by9.com. Also, you can just sit back and support us by turning up, by listening and enjoying. Our third and final story for this podcast takes us back to our live event, and it's the unique Paul Hutchinson. Today I am thankful for a memory of bodies in motion. My encounters with a mighty crew, a flurry of female energy, a team who crossed borders with only pom-poms as their passport. And my entry point into this troop of transgression began with a rumour. A rumour of a cheerleading squad in Sandy Row. And the rumour led me to a dusty wooden floored room where I saw 15 girls aged between 12 and 16 stumbling through a dance routine. Stooping and starting, getting it wrong, swearing and sweating, getting it right, gleaming and beaming. Encouraged and counted in by their head coach, Leslie, who was gentle then firm, warm then sharp, occasionally blunt and shouty loud. There was no glam here, no football team to cheer, no team to chant or follow. I was confused. Who do you cheer? I asked. Their collective look was withering. How could I not know that you don't need a team to cheer to be a cheerleader? How could I not know that there are competitions for this hybrid brew of street dance, cheer moves and high intensity choreography? That was the first stereotype to fall. And then another stereotype quickly demolished that to cheerlead, you needed to be a perfect-bodied, cute, smiling, overachieving, blonde American. The Sandy Row Falcons were not this. <laughs> they occasionally smiled, were all shapes and sizes, very mixed ability, and all working-class white girls from Sandy Row. Proud Protestants all. And then another stereotype smashed and thrown onto their bonfire in the telling of their origin story, a toe-tapping tale of boundary-crossing bravery. Leslie takes up the tale. We had a demo from a girl I sort of knew from the Catholic New Lodge and she came to Sandy Road from the New Lodge, can you believe it? And she did one session about cheerleading and talked about it and then the next day I got a sheet of blank paper and wrote on it, cheerleading sessions, all welcome. With my name and number at the bottom, I stuck it to the wall of the community centre and by the end of the week it was full. That's how it started. I'd never done cheerleading before. <laughs> But I had been a roller skating champion <laughs> 25 years ago. And I loved these kids and there was nothing else for them. How do you create a movement, make a difference? Apparently, all you need is love. The love of a bespectacled, middle-aged, school dinner lady slash 
former roller skating champion. <laughs> and that's how it began. And that's how it went. One foot and then the next. The first move and then the second. And then we made a film about them as they trained for the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Belfast. I asked two of the Falcons, would you go to this parade if you weren't cheerleading? Paul, said one of them, our kind are not welcome there. Prods, the parade is not for the likes of us. St. Patrick was not one of us. Nor was he one of them. But that's another timeline in the fellowship. <laughs> and so, in tandem with my filmmaking partner, the talented and tall Mr. Ben Jones, we turned up at their training every week to try and capture the chaos and wonder of this crew, the tantrums and the missteps, the tired bodies and the fear of success, the divas and the dress rehearsal, the spray tans and the teen mums, and the moments of sheer delight from getting a sequence right. Not perfect, but together, synced in time, in line. And there were some nights when all we seemed to capture was how out of step this venture was, practicing to perform in a parade that none of their mates and family would attend, performing in a parade where they had been told that green monsters rose up and took over the Belfast city centre. And so, on the morning of the Belfast St. Patrick's Day parade, they lined up to be counted, surrounded where they stood at the City Hall by a rain of green and a tension of tricolour, surrounded by furiously flapping flags that they had been told meant trouble. There they stood with their brave faces on and their nails bitten to the quick, with their fake tan glowing, with their unsubtle banner proclaiming their proud, proud origins. We are the Sandy Road Falcons! Exclamation mark. <laughs> and inwardly thinking, we are hemmed in by an army of enemy flags. <laughs> And then a loud whistle blew. The falcons fluttered and flew close, defensive. But this was not a whistle announcing danger, and this was not a whistle of attack, no. This was a whistle of welcome, a whistle to gather the assembled to attention, a whistle to begin the parade. The waiting and the tension was over. The falcons began to slowly walk to follow the others, walking and then, and then, music, their music. The falcons began to dance. And they danced and stirred and stirred and smiled and shimmied and trusted in their coach who barked encouragement and caution, keep in line, to the bulging crowd as much as her beloved squad. And the falcons were welcomed with whoops and whistles, grins and generous applause, with cheers and chants from the green-clad crowd. And crowd and crew began to make something new with the ancient ingredients of dance, applause, anxiety and welcome.
And isn't every new dance made up of feeling and failing and stretch and strain and the folding and unfolding of old holds and new grips until something original rises up and sways our ways? We didn't know it at the time, but we were making a superhero movie. But unlike other superheroes who conceal their identity with masks, this mighty crew were revealed by their outfits, revealed by their dance as they jumped and leapt in and out of time, in and out of religious categories like existential escapologists. And no-go areas became go-ahead places, and borders were crossed with raised heartbeats, sweaty palms and practice. And the Falcons knew they were stronger together, trusting in the beat, tuning into heartbeats, true to their origins, pressing their limits, trusting in one foot and then the next, trusting their coach to count them in and mouth the lyric of each new song, trusting in the next three minutes of routine. And after that, uncertainty and possibility. And at the launch of their film, which of course was called Prods and Pom Poms, <laughs> there was high drama. They had hired a pink stretch limo to take them all. It took quite a few trips from Sandy Row to the Queen's Film Theatre. And they were all decked out in their finest party outfits, all glammed up for the big event. And to top it all off with a big movie premiere flourish, they had borrowed, don't ask, a roll of red carpet <laughs> for their entrance to the premiere of their film at the QFT. A red carpet? I was more than a little bewildered by all of this fanfare for a very modest, low-budget film. I mentioned this to one of the leaders, talking gently about how I thought it might be a little over the top. And the leader stared at me like I had insulted her family. Paul, she said, who's going to make another film about us? This is it, she beamed. This is it. And after the showing of the film, as a gesture of thanks, Ben and I were presented with our very own set of pom-poms and a framed certificate declaring us lifetime honorary members <laughs> of the Sandy Row Falcons. The pom-poms and certificate are long gone, but inside I know I'm a boundary-busting falcon. Thanks very much, Paul. Um, next time you come to tell a story, Paul, we're going to see if you can bust out a few moves. And we'll, um... What a brilliant story, Paul, and what an amazing bunch of young women. Thank you so much. And that's it for this podcast. You can get in touch with us on social media or email or via our website, tambanine.com. I love to hear from you. 
Keep an eye out for upcoming events and themes, and keep checking for tickets on Eventbrite if you're coming to the Black Box. This podcast is a 10x9 production. For now, bye-bye.